All right, let's get going here. I want to talk about statements of faith. We're, uh, we're familiar with statements of faith. Usually they're, you find them in churches or religious institutions or Christian colleges, sometimes parachurch groups. And they lay out what the group or the church believes, some basic beliefs. Are we working? Working now? All right. Um, But we're familiar with them, and they lay out what a group believes. And it gives us a chance to understand the essential point of faith of that group or that organization or that church. And sometimes a statement of faith can can cause a person to reconsider their own beliefs, which is useful. And they will... Uh, They have titles like statements of faith or statements of belief or uh, doctrines or all kinds of different things. Our statement of faith here at Grace Life, we call it what we believe. Some statements are evangelical in nature or Reformed or Catholic or Methodist or Baptist, etc. Some statements aren't really statements at all, at least not in the traditional sense. But they frame as a series of ideas or positions some statements, I was doing research uh, on the web about that. Some statements I found are, want to be inclusive. Others seek to deal with nearly every biblical subject and become almost as long as the Bible. Some churches don't have any statement of faith. In fact, one church I looked up uh, rejected using a statement of faith because they felt it was outdated and useless. As I said, we have a statement of faith, and we call and it's called here what we believe. And I'd like to read it to you. I think it's going to be up on the screen here in a minute, so you can follow along. And if you haven't had a chance to to read it, uh, to look at it, this will be a good chance for you here. There we go. All right, God, we believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal in being, co-eternal in nature, co-eternal in power and glory having the same attributes and perfections. He is the creator of the universe. He has always existed, never having a beginning, never ending, and never changing. He is holy, merciful, and forgiving, compassionate, just, and will judge the world in righteousness. The Bible. We believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, is the verbally inspired word of God, his truth, his heart, his pur- and his purpose for the world. It is the final authority for faith and practice, inerrant in the original writings, infallible in God-breathed, the person and work of Christ. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who became man without ceasing to be God, having having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, in order that he might reveal God and redeem humanity. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished Uh, our redemption through his death on the cross as a representative, vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice, and that our justification is made sure by his literal, physical resurrection from the dead. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and and is now exalted at the right hand of God, where, as our high priest, he fulfills the ministry of representative, intercessor, and advocate, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a person who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and that he is the supernatural agent in regeneration, baptizing all believers into the body of Christ, indwelling and sealing them until the day of redemption. He is the one who comforts us in our pain, the one who counsels us in our trials, the one who guides us to live in all truth, 
He produces fruit in us that does not earn our salvation, but rather is, that is evidence that our salvation has and is taking place. We believe that salvation is the gift of God brought to man by grace and received by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed on the cross at Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. So a purpose of the statement of faith is to provide this biblical framework of a church or an institution so that a person could decide if what they believe is compatible. Another purpose is, I think, to encourage believers with the assurance of who God is and what he has done. In our passage today, John gives us four statements of faith. They both identify believers and encourage believers in who they are in Christ. And along with the statements, John gives us three what I call proofs about those statements. Let's read the passage, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that today that you will bring your word into our hearts and use your word, Father, to encourage us and to assure us of who we are in you and of our standing with you, and of what you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you've been uh, staying with us as we've worked our way through 1 John, you may have noticed that John repeats himself. Uh, He repeats himself a lot. He has two main themes, themes in his letter. One is God is light, and one is God is love. And within those two themes, with varying emphasis, John is most concerned with how believers obey and about how they love and about what they believe. John Stott calls these three tests. We've been calling them diagnostics. These three tests or diagnostics are intertwined in John's letter, and so much so that it's difficult to untangle them. In our passage today, the words believe or faith occur in verses 1, 4, and 5. The word love occurs in in verses 1, 2, and 3. And obey or keep his commandments occurs in verses 2 and 3. John wants us to see the unity of these three diagnostics or these three tests. And John has purposely mashed them together. We tend to look at them separately, but they are not separate. And between the bookends of belief in verse 1 and verse 5 are John's concern about his readers, both for their love for God and for one another, as well as their obedience. So let's look at the first statement. 1 John 5, one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the first thing to notice in this statement, the statement of faith, as I'm calling it, it's about our belief in Jesus Christ. Specifically, as John says, that Jesus is the Christ. In the context of the letter, that includes the idea that Jesus came in human flesh. John's opponents taught the opposite. They taught that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. They taught that he was not human. 
John says, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, or if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came in human flesh, you have been born or have been fathered by God. You are part of God's family. The opposite is also true. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are not part of God's family. You are not born of God. So the second part of the statement derives from the first. Everyone who loves the Father, that is, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, loves those who are fathered by God. That is, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you also love those who also believe that. And why wouldn't you? You're a part of the same family. Sons and daughters adopted by God and heirs through God. <clears throat> Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What John says in this first statement might sound a little bit like a diagnostic, but it's not really. It's a statement of faith, a statement of fact. And remember John's purpose for writing. He wanted to respond to these opponents who had left the fellowship, teaching that Jesus wasn't the Christ. And they left, and they broke the fellowship they had, and John's re readers were troubled by this. Rather than, than a diagnostic, this statement is at once a confirmation that those opponents are not fathered by God. John said earlier, they were never of us. And in addition, it's an assurance for believers that they are fathered by God. One more note about this statement. The statement is an unalterable condition based on belief in Christ. Loving one another is not a consequence of the belief. Loving one another is the natural, spiritual outcome of believing in Christ. Believing in Christ means that we love one another. So, the first proof that John gives with this statement, how we know we love God's children. 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So this proof comes from the statement that John just made. There he says that the person who loves the Father loves God's children. The proof answers the question. How do we know that we love God's children? The answer is when we love God and obey his commandments. That's a proof. That's a, a demonstration, if you will, of our love for God and our love for the brothers. Now, John doesn't prove or try to demonstrate that we love one another, that we love God's children by saying that we do this or we do that. That is, we, he doesn't say that the demonstration of your loving one another is when you go pick someone up, pick someone up to take, take in the church, or when you go visit someone in the hospital, or when you go over to someone's house to help them with some chores. Rather, the proof is that we love the proof is that we love the Father and obey his commandments. That's the proof. That's the demonstration. If we love God, we love his children. We know we love God's children because we obey and love God. The two are intertwined. Augustine said this to love the children of God is to love the Son of God. To love the Son of God is to love the Father. Nobody can love the Father without loving the Son, and anyone who loves the Son will love the other children as well. So what are his commandments? Well, John's already answered that question for us. 
1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Loving one another is a natural, spiritual condition believers participate in because we have been given the capacity to love one another by God through his Spirit. And because the love of Christ is our example and our motivation. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. So this begs a question. What if I don't love very well? The statement in verse 1 is still true. It doesn't depend on my actions. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Messiah, that he has come in the flesh, is born or fathered by God, and loving the Father, we love his children. The fact that a believer fails from time to time in loving the brothers and sisters is due to our flesh, that part of us that battles against the Spirit as we live our lives. We have the ability and resources to love the brothers in us by the Spirit, and since we are energized in loving one another because God loves us, it's simply a matter of seeking God's direction, and relying on his power to carry out our love for one another. Sometimes we need encouragement. Certainly John, in his letter, gives lots of encouragement to love one another. But God has given us what we need. In fact, God has given us, God has laid out for us the things that he wants us to do. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's already laid them out. You don't have to build them up. You don't have to gin them up. You don't have to try and search for them, look under rocks and behind trees to see what God wants you to do. They're already laid out. Uh, I have an example of that just this week. Um, I got a text from somebody saying that that, uh, their family member uh, was in the hospital, and they were asking for prayer. They weren't asking for any else, anything else. They were just asking for prayer. But I knew immediately when I got that text, not only that I should pray, and I certainly did pray, but I knew immediately that I should go visit that person in the hospital. God had laid out that love that I could share with my brother. So John doesn't pay much attention to uh, outlines or to a point-by-point logical Uh, oratory in his letter. He has a penchant for mixing things up. And just as we have begun here saying, okay, here's statement one, and now here's proof one, John reverses the order, and he gives us proof number two first before the statement. 1 John 5, 3, the first part of the statement. For this is the love of God that we we keep his commandments. John is, is establishing a proof now before the statement of faith. John is referring to our love for God, which is what he was just talking about in verse 2. And I think John is anticipating a question by his readers about the difficulty of carrying out God's commandments. It does sound like the previous proof. They're very similar. The proof there, uh, the first proof is uh, of our loving our brothers and sisters that we keep God's commandment. Here, keeping God's commandments proves our love for God. There are many imperatives in the New Testament about how we should behave and live our lives. Yet all those imperatives are in the context of what Jesus has done for us. And because of what he has done for us, that enables us to carry out the imperatives. Jesus' concern about keeping God's commandments was centered on loving one another. 
We've been we've seen this passage several times before, but it's worth reading again. John fifteen, nine through sixteen. <clears throat> As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Keeping God's commands brings joy to the keeper. Keeping God's commands brings closeness to God. Keeping God's commands deepens the friendship we have with Jesus. Keeping God's commands bears lasting fruit, which Jesus chose us to do. Which brings us to the second statement, God's commands, the second part of 1 John 5, 3. And his commands are not burdensome. This statement answers those questions that John's readers were asking in their minds about the difficulty of keeping God's commands. John posits that they are not a burden to keep. The idea of a burden may not capture the depth of meaning here of the Greek word. The word means oppressive. How do you define oppressive? Well, the best way I know how to define it uh, is if you've ever been in the Mojave Desert in Southern California, you know what oppressive feels like. There's a place in that desert called Death Valley, appropriately named. The highest ever recorded temperature, at least in the United States there, was 140 to 143 degrees. I was not there when that day, thank God. It's pretty hot. Jesus said the Pharisees and scribes tie up heavy loads as if putting them on a donkey, that they're too much to bear. So why are Jesus' commands not a burden to bear? Well, because the keeping of those commands is done out of the love for Christ that he demonstrated toward us. Our keeping God's commands is a response of love. It's not a duty to perform. Paul said the love of Christ compelled him to share the gospel. It, Paul didn't, wasn't going around sharing the gospel because he felt like he had to uh, gain points. He shared the gospel because of what Christ had done for him. When somebody does something for us, especially if it's unsolicited, we want to often return the favor. And most of the time, the desire to give back or to return the favor is response to the love shown to us. But this finds its highest expression in what Jesus has done for us. What we've already said. We love because he first loved us. However, many places, often religious places, context the keeping of commands as something that must be done to gain favor or to gain position or to gain forgiveness. We We call that legalism. And legalism can happen. That's why we need, as it has often been said here, that we need to continually preach the gospel to ourselves. 
Legalism can, can happen in Bible-believing believing churches. It can happen in Bible-believing believers. Because we sometimes slip into measuring ourselves, measuring our worth, measuring our fitness before God by what we do. I got a good lesson in this <clears throat> when I was finishing up my degree at Christian College. Uh, toward the end of the year, <clears throat> the school had a convocation where they... Uh, uh, each department in the school, theology department, Christian education department, biblical studies department, and so on, they uh, recognized one or two people out of their department, students, because of their outstanding achievements or uh, their outstanding grades or, or whatever whatever the, uh, the standard was. So we were at this convocation. I was in the Christian education department. And their departments were giving out their... their uh, Recognitions and with the recognitions, these other departments would give really nice gifts. And so it came time for the education department, Christian education department, to recognize its outstanding people. And I, along with a young lady, was called up to be recognized. And that was very exciting. It was great to be recognized for our service. And I was excited about that, and I was also really excited about the gift I was going to get. So the... Uh, head of the department, a guy named Larry Waite, who I will never forget. Uh, he was the head of the department. And the gift he gave us was nothing. He said that he recognized us for our service and that servants do not serve the Lord for reward, but serve the Lord who saved them. That's what loving one another is all about. Now, this is not to say that keeping God's commands are not hard at times. They are. For those people who, those believers who live in places of persecution, just living for Christ is hard, let alone preaching the gospel or bringing aid to those in need. Those can threaten your freedom or even your life. In our world, picking someone up, maybe physically helping them up or picking them up to give them a ride or visiting someone, it can take time. Occasionally, it can take some money. And it may take more than you think that you have to give. But in such situations, keeping God's commands is done out of gratefulness for God, for what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has done more for us than we will ever be asked to do for him. Christ's burden is indeed light. Keeping Christ's commands is uh, easy, especially in comparison to the alternative we mentioned that what Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees, Luke eleven forty six. He said, "Woe to you, uh, you lawyers! Also, I love that lawyers. Hope there's not any lawyers in here. <clears throat> For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers." In contrast, this is what Jesus said about his burden, Matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Statement number three. Believers overcome the world. First John 5, 4, the first part of it. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So this is a bold statement. Do you feel like you've overcome the world this week? There's a wordplay in Greek that is hard to see here sometimes when translated to English. 
if we could, it would read something like this. For everyone born of God conquers the world. This is the conquering that has conquered the world, even our faith. There's a lot of conquering going on there. You can see the conquering is important or overcoming. And John, in the, in the, in the uh, verse there, he uses the present tense, indicating that conquering is a current and ongoing experience for believers. So you see, you did overcome this week, even if it didn't feel like it. The idea here is that, we have, that what we have in Christ is so much better than what we had in the world that achieving victory is a small thing because the victory has already been achieved. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have, these, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, take heart. I have overcome the world. And John says that we have overcome. First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So in addition to the reality in verse 1 that believing in Christ results in being born of God, <clears throat> that being fathered by God means that every believer loves the household of faith, in addition to those things, believers have also overcome the world. The word world in, the, in that passage means the world system of morals and values. But John is more specific in his idea. He says his readers have conquered them, meaning their opponents, by being in Christ. And John made that clear before in 1 John two, thirteen and 14. I am writing you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John reminds his readers that the conquering, the overcoming, the victory, is tied directly to knowing God. That conquering means that we have defeated the evil one. Well, we really haven't defeated the evil one. Christ has. So what exactly did the conquering by Christ accomplished? There are many places in the New Testament that describe this conquering, but I think my favorite is in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That phrase there, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, isn't talking about kings or presidents or prime ministers. It's talking about demons and our enemy, Satan. On the cross, cross, Christ took our sins, our trespasses. He nailed them to the cross, negating the debt that we owed because of that. And in addition to that, he put the rulers and authorities to open shame, disarming them. Satan is active in the world, as are his demons, but they have no power over you. <clears throat> they can do nothing to you apart from God. And even in that, they don't have any power. We have Jesus Christ. 
There's a lot of conquering going on in what Jesus did. You and I fall under that conquering power and we have access to it. So, proof number three. How we know we have overcome the world. John makes a statement we've overcome the world, but how do we know? 1 John 5, 4, the second part. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The proof that we have conquered the world is our faith. And in fact, our faith is the victory. Think about that for a moment. In the moment you believed, the moment you decided to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, it is in that moment you became victorious over the world, specifically over the enemy. You are now in the camp of the victorious. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. <clears throat> the word for faith here that John uses, he uses only here in his letter. <clears throat> usually he uses another word that's usually translated believe. But by using the word faith, the Greek word for faith here, John is emphasizing the faith. Suggesting the idea of a confession of faith or the content of what we believe. This makes sense because, as we noted earlier, John begins this passage in verse 1 with the idea that Jesus, that believing that Christ came in the flesh and ends the passage in verse 5 with another statement of faith about Christ, which we'll get to in a moment. But for John, we know that we have overcome the world because we believe in Christ. You have overcome the world because you believe in Jesus Christ. So, this week, go out and do some overcoming. Statement number four. Jesus is the Son of God. First John 5.5 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John puts this in the form of a question, but it's rhetorical. His final statement of the passage continues John's thoughts about overcoming. But this statement also goes back to the opening statement of, in verse 1. And like in verse 1, the statement of verse 5 is one of assurance. The one who has conquered the world is the one who believes, that is, the one who trusts that Jesus is the Son of God. <clears throat> Put another way around, the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God is the one who has conquered the world. Our trust gives us access to the conquering power over the world, and it is a completed action and also, in the present tense, a continuing overcoming. If one believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that one has conquered the world. So consider this. In verse 1, John's statement that one is fathered or born of God is the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. That refers to as Jesus being fully human. We've already talked about that. A fact that John's opponents deny. The statement in verse 5 complements the statement in verse 1. And here it is that one believes that Jesus is the Son of God referring to his deity, which John's opponents also denied. These two beliefs are not separate. That is, they're not two different things, but rather are combined. The one who believes that Jesus is the Christ also believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is human, fully human and fully God. So to summarize this short passage, the result of, of that belief in Jesus is that we are fathered by God, that we love one another, that we obey his commandments, and that we've conquered the world. The outcome of this is that no matter what the world does to the church as a whole, no matter what the world does to the local church, no matter what the world does to individual believers, victory is ours. 
Once a person has put his or her faith in Christ, despite the death that sometimes come, and despite the trouble that inevitably comes, and despite the cost of loving one another, and despite the cost of persecution, the belief that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God who came uh, to bring us life and salvation empowers us and enables us to overcome the world, to overcome those who oppose us, and to overcome the enemy. Because it's already been over, it's already been done. John Stott said, confidence in the divine human person of Jesus is the one weapon against which neither the error nor the evil nor the force of the world can prevail. Elon Blakelock pointed out that this, uh, uh, I'm sorry, rightly pointed out that the daring of this first century claim of John, that the victory belongs not to Rome, who at that time was reigning supreme in the world, but to Christ and to the humble believer in Christ. To borrow Blake Locke's idea, putting it in more contemporary terms, the daring claim of John the Apostle that the victory belongs not to the United States or to any of its politicians, or maybe I should say especially its politicians. It doesn't belong to China. It doesn't belong to Russia. It doesn't belong to Iran or Iraq. It doesn't belong to persecutors of Christians around the world. It belongs to you, humble believer in Jesus Christ. It belongs to you. I'd like you to think and consider this as we close. If your faith is in Christ, believing that Jesus Christ is the Christ and and is the Son of God who came to the earth as fully God and fully human to provide life and salvation, I think John would say this to you. Be assured that you have been fathered by God. Be assured that you love the household of faith, if not always perfectly. Be assured that you keep God's commandments, again, if not always perfectly. And be assured that you have overcome the world. When I MC in the service, uh, at the end of the service, I sometimes say, go be the church in the world. What John has said in these five verses is what I mean by that. So I encourage you, go be the church in the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, and I thank you for John, who dealt directly with people who deny who you are, people who deny that Jesus came to earth fully human and fully God. Thank you for giving us, preserving this letter that John wrote for us so that we would know that we can be assured that because of our faith we love you we love the brothers and we've overcome the world thank you Lord for that may we act like overcomers even this week in Jesus name Amen